great. It's great to hear um, so many voices in the room um, chatting away. Um, lovely to see some new faces as well. Um, just want to extend the welcome to you if, this is, if you're new, if this is your first time in this building or uh, worshiping with us. Redeemer, you're really, really welcome um, this morning. Um, I'm really kind of always love to hear little updates from Dan or from, from Ian, from the teams doing some wonderful work. Uh, uh, the slide that was up before was that we're a community that are seeking to work for the peace and common good of our city. And that's really just deeply, deeply ingrained and formed by our faith. And, uh, and as Dan was speaking just about the week we've been in, it's been a kind of a, a strange week, no matter what you're kind of political views or your identity or what you think of as Dan was saying, the, the monarchy, you know, it's kind of a dominating historical event this week. I've just been quite struck by particularly just revisiting um, the Queen's visit to Ireland and uh, her speech with Mary McAleese and her handshake with Martin McGuinness and just the kind of uh, person of peace um, that she was, peacemaking, peace building. Um, reconciliation that was informed uh, by her faith. And in, I guess in a similar way, if, if we can take one thing from her life, um, it's that that has Jesus people with our allegiance to one person only, King Jesus today, that we can be a people of reconciliation and peacemaking and justice um, and equality. Um, and so, um, yeah, I hope that uh, we can be encouraged by um, what that part of her life and what she's been given her life to in that way. Um, it's quite inspiring. And it's really lovely to hear the stories in the small, small, small ways that we're opening our doors and serving some of our city here, people who've come from afar. Um, and so we seek and we're trying to be that faithful Jesus community with Jesus as our King, our allegiance to him and wanting to practice justice and welcome and inclusion. Um, so that's what we're about. If you're new here today, that's what we're about. We're really Jesus-y people. We love Jesus. We love singing about Jesus, praying to Jesus, but bringing the way of Jesus, the justice of Jesus, the peace of Jesus um, to our city. So um, great to hear that update in and all that's going on. Um, we've been in this series, um, started last week, and it's asking the question that's on the screen behind me, what kind of church? Um, and we're just exploring some of the values that give shape in addition to what I've said already, <laughs> gives shape to who we are um, as a church. Um, so I'm going to talk today a little bit about the next value. Um, last week we talked about being a Jesus-centered community. You can catch up with that in the podcast. We're really all about Jesus, as I've been saying. Jesus at the center and how that informs how we do community, how we do life, how we do relationships, how we model ourselves and follow his way. And we're going to talk more about that today. So on the 15th of April, 2019, um, you might remember where you were, you might not. This might have been important to you, it might not have. It certainly wasn't as historical as what's been going on this week, but do you remember the medieval Catholic cathedral, Notre Dame in Paris, was on fire? Do you remember that moment? Um, <clears throat> I remember it. Um, I remember watching it on the TV screens and... Um, and I guess I remember kind of being worried about this old ancient building, um, Notre Dame. And you could see the people of Paris were also just, and indeed France, were, were devastated. And they were gathering around that church, watching that church kind of in flames. And for hours and hours, the public in France and indeed around the world were gripped, watching. And even those on the ground, literally there in Paris, Parisians were gripped, watching, praying, 
um, singing songs, essentially taking up a vigil around this cathedral um, with the hope that the fire crews that were working could put the flames out and extinguish them and, and save the building. And the blaze that engulfed Notre Dame in April 2019, it was, it was devastating, but, but thanks to the bravery of the fire crews working there, most of that building was saved. The spire uh, and most of the roof were destroyed, um, but mir and miraculously, thankfully, no one was, was killed. And I've been reading a book this summer um, by one of my favorite writers called Brian Zand, uh, When Everything is on Fire, and I always love Brian. Um, I hope you recommended his book for our summer reading list. I'd really recommend it. And in the book, When Everything is on Fire, Brian Zand describes that event of Notre Dame on Fire as a modern-day parable. Because essentially, um, and I love Paris and love Parisian people, but in terms of our historical context, Paris is like the epicenter of what you might call Western society, Western culture, Western secularism. It's the epicenter, really, of what we might call modern atheism. And so you'd have modern Parisians who would kind of walk with kind of a, as he calls it, a shrugging shoulder indifference past Notre Dame every day. Because religion and what Notre Dame represents is just not, on, it's not relevant to their lives. And yet, when it was on fire, it gripped the city. It, it, it stopped them in their tracks. And it, there were these vigils, it was saying, for what they call Our Lady. That's what they called the cathedral, Notre Dame. There were grief on their faces, and I've said singing and weeping. Perhaps not many maybe really understood where that emotion was coming from. Why, are we, why do we feel things for our buildings? <laughs> you know, why, why were we gripped by that? Why were they gripped by that? Because it was in the heart of their city. A place that paid little or no time to that building or what it represents was consumed with grief at losing it. What's, what's kind of going on there? Like, what's happening here? I think on the side, change is difficult. I think we've been kind of reflecting on that this week, just when you have, a, for example, a constancy that is gone, there's like change, change in our lives, big and small, is difficult. Um, it's difficult. And we crave security and certitude, and no doubt the grief and the emotion of those Parisians um, was because there was something changing, something that was used to be there all the time, it was like at risk of being lost. That's what we've seen this week, even in the UK, with passing of the queen, you know, the, the, an end of an era, things are changing, and it just asks the question about what does the future look like. I don't think it was a changing landscape in the city of Paris that was really upsetting people the most about Notre Dame. Um, it speaks to something deeper, I think, something deeper in us. There's a, there is an irony to pe people who would pass that building, even us, even ourselves at times, pass that building with indifference, and yet when when it's at risk of being lost, we're gripped with a grief, in a sense, an emotion to it. The thing is, no matter where you're at today, no matter where maybe I find myself today in relation to my faith or God, or if I have faith at all, I believe truly and deeply that there's a deep ache within us for what I would call the sacred, for a sense that there's more to life than just what we see. I guess the the secular and kind of pragmatic view would be, well, it's just, it's, it's just a building. I mean, it, it's just a building. The cathedral's just, it is just a building. <laughs> it's just bricks and mortar. So we just rebuild it, right? 
but we all know, I mean, what's the, they would say, what's the fuss? But we all know that it, it just, there's more to it than just bricks and mortar. Like, if you rebuilt it, it's not the same. There's something going on there. And even the most skeptical or secular Parisian or even Northern Irish person or British person or whatever, even the most skeptical would, would has a reaction to something like that in flames. There's something more to it. And I think even in the midst of a secular age, which is what we're living in, we're living in a secular age, even with those that are suspicious of what we might call the sacred, there's still something deep down within us that yearns for it or, or, or wants it, or there's an ache there. Like historical buildings kind of do that to us. There's something other there. There's something, buildings that contain prayers of people over centuries and centuries and centuries. I've been to Paris. It's beautiful. And the cathedral, like most European cities, is right in the center of the city. And I think it connects us, buildings like that, not just Christian churches, but buildings like that, monuments like that, they connect us to beyond our current age. They reach back into history. They reach back into time. And they give us a sense of place, a sense of meaning. And there's more to it than meets the eye, more to it than just bricks and mortar. And I think that's a, it's a modern-day parable that the, the city of Paris, the center of the Western secular age, stood still in grief at the burning Notre Dame. It's a modern-day parable. And I think it's kind of a metaphor, too, for maybe how we even can see faith sometimes, something we hold precious, but it feels like it's burning, it's crumbling, and we want it, but we don't know how to make sense of it. I want to go further. I think modern life in general, secular life, the life that just sees things as brick and mortar, the, the life that just walks past buildings like that or with indifference, I think maybe you will agree with me, that kind of modern life, it, it, it makes us and leaves us feeling disoriented at times, uprooted at times. Because we've been told a story, we've been told a story, the story is the story of this secular, modern, global world that we live in. It's this idea that we don't need ideas from the past, that we, we don't need ideas from the past. They're kind of part of the problem. Like what maybe Notre Dame represents is kind of part of the problem. <laughs> we need to move on and progress. And there's lots of good things about that, moving on and progressing and creating a new future. But that's essentially, there's like a story to say we can, we can do that. It's cut loose and we can do it that and armed with the ability to travel cheaply and freely anywhere and everywhere, having information at our fingertips, on our phones. This story invites us into thinking of ourselves as the center of our world, spending our money on things that make us happy and being free from the restraints of previous generations that would hold us back, those old ideas that caused war and division. We're in a new era. It's a global world. We can crack on. French anthro anthropologist Marc Auge, I think that's how he pronounces his name, even describes many of those of our modern-day buildings, like airports, like shopping complexes, like chain coffee shops, as the antithesis of a cathedral. They're non-places. They're kind of disconnected from the people in the land around them. In fact, I was in Bordeaux in June on holiday, and it was beautiful. And, but even in that city, which is packed full of beautiful architecture and history, there were several points where I was just finding myself sitting in a shopping complex in a Starbucks 
on my phone, messaging people from home, messaging my mom. It just, I could have been anywhere in the world. I, it, I wasn't in Bordeaux. I could have been in Victoria Square. I could have been anywhere. There's a global culture. The non-place, the, the, nothing against Starbucks. I love Starbucks. But the coffee shop, the airport, the shopping complexes of Western society, they're kind of signifiers of this I guess, homogenous culture that's simply based on this story and this myth. Transact and utilitarian. What you get, what you can spend your money on to meet your needs. It places you right at the center of the story. Walk through any shopping complex, see the adverts that are advertising to you, and you'll see that's the, that is the culture and the age in which we live. And I think as, even as those today that follow Jesus, that follow Christ, we're not immune to that story. Like we're deeply shaped by secularism. I hope not as much as we think we are, but we probably are. We're not immune to that at all. We're shaped by the world we live in, the water that we swim in. We even believe it or tempt to believe it. Sometimes I, if, to have that latest thing will bring me that freedom that I always wanted. To have that life will bring me that freedom that I wanted, that I could actualize myself in this world. And if you've ever, hands up if you've ever thought it was hard to be a Christian in the day that we live. Genuinely. It's really hard. I think it's really hard. It's because of this. We're it's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not going against that countercultural story of we're Christians and we're kind of always about going against the culture. I'm not talking about culture wars or anything like that. I'm simply just talking about the kind of invisible stories that are told. Oh, we're swimming against the tide always. That everything that can, we can see and we can measure, that's it. There's nothing else beyond that. There's nothing to this world that is sacred or holy or transcendent. And that, I believe, is why I find it difficult at times with faith, because that's the world in which we live, and it can shape us. It often leaves us feeling disorientated, even disillusioned at faith, because it's like you look at the world around us, and our cars can kind of drive themselves on electricity, and we can fire rockets into space. So why on earth are we going to believe old things like someone raised from the dead, because that's never happened, or... It just seems so, faith seems so irrelevant because we, the human race, we're creating our own future. And faith just feels like it's broken. Like it used to work for other people and back in a different generation, but it's, it just doesn't kind of work the same way anymore. There's all these questions that are raised in our society today, and we, we don't really know what the answers are, how our faith interacts with that. So often we drop, we drop it. Or we get confused. That's my story. We have to process our faith. What do we believe? And how does that work with this? And so what do we do? Well, hopefully on the screen, a scripture is going to come up, Jeremiah 6, 16, because I want to begin with this verse. And I want to talk today about what kind of church we are trying to be. Um, I'm going to read this scripture first. Jeremiah 6, 16, thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful passage, and it speaks to the kind of church that we're striving to be by the grace of Jesus. I'm going to call that an ancient future church. It's a term, hopefully it'll maybe come up on the screen, an ancient future church. What What does that even mean? In short, here's what I think it means to be an ancient future church means that the story of God is a, is a different story to that myth, that story I told about before, where we're at the center of it. The story of God and the wisdom of God says this, that the road to the future runs through the past. That the, the road to the future runs through the past. Jeremiah 6 talks about the ancient paths. But there's actually wisdom, not only just there's a story, but there's also wisdom in the past that is, in fact, the very road that will help us to move into the future. And we're located in that story. And as followers of Jesus, we're located in the story of God. We don't get to make Christianity up. It's not made up. No one, I didn't make it, no, we didn't make it up. We were born into a world. We receive the faith. And it is the story of God. Now, we can improvise in the story. Like a jazz musician needs to know the scales. The jazz musician can kind of improvise on top of all of that, but the, the structure is still there. It holds so we can improvise because we're enacting out the story in live time. Stories really matter. For example, in a few months' time, you'll put a six-foot Nordic pine tree in the corner of your living room. Why? Just a tree. But if you decorate it in a certain way, it takes on meaning. If you walked into someone's living room in June and they had a six-foot Nordic tree in the corner of your living room, you'd be like, why? (laughs) What's going on? But you walk in in December and there's a star on the top and there's some tinsel. And there's a story, there's a meaning, there's there's a story being told there. It takes on a whole different thing. Stories matter. Or a curbstone in Belfast. If you're not from these parts and you walk down a road, you'll just see curbstones that are painted nice colors. <laughs> but when you kind of begin to understand that red, white, and blue means something to some people in a certain way, there's kind of a story being told there. So we need to understand the stories that we're living in. And I believe we need to understand the story that we are a part of. And stories are kind of like GPS coordinates. They help us navigate They help us find our bearings. They tell us where we're coming from and where we're going to. They're probably the most important thing in the world, really, because without a story, we will struggle to survive. Our lives will become incoherent. We anchor ourselves to stories, whether we think it or not. So without a story, we would struggle to live or survive. Alistair McIntyre says this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself apart? And as human beings, we're actually wired to tell stories. It's like kind of a hardwired into our brains as, as human beings. And so I believe to be an ancient future church means to connect to the ancient paths, 
means that our future takes us and runs through the past. It means that we're connected to a story that's bigger than just us, that we just find ourselves in a story like a river that's flowing. We just find ourselves in it like an eternal current. And we need to keep the story as the guiding light. For many of us following Jesus and making sense of our faith, we get bogged down in the technicalities of that. And we forget the story. We think about beliefs and what should, what's, what should we play here and what should we say here and what does that mean and how do we... But we forget the big overarching story of God, the story of love, the story of self-sacrificial love, the story of resurrection of all creation, including this world, the story of a God who brings and mends and heals and puts back together all that's been broken. Everything that's broken in your life, in your own heart, in your families, in your friends, everything that's not as it should be, restored and healed, mended, put back together in love and in grace. This is the story of redemption, the story of God. N.C. Wright says this, throw a rule book at people's head or offer them a list of doctrines and they can duck it, avoid it, or go away. Tell them a story though when you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a God view rather than a world view. We have the privilege as N.T. Wright says, of living and acting in that story as Christians. So to be an ancient future church means we are aware of the history of our faith. We are not just the last 50 years of evangelicalism, like the history of our faith all around the world. And we have a, there's an implication that when we adopt the narrative, we adopt that story there's implications to that, that we are like players within the final act of God. We actually have to participate in it, like the improvising jazz pianist. We can improvise in God's master story of hope and restoration and, re and resurrection. And if we, otherwise we can be submerged by other stories. Other stories are being told and invite us into them. John Dominic Crossan says, that there's a hopelessness in the postmodern world, and he describes it like, quote, there is no lighthouse keeper. There is no lighthouse. There's not even dry land. There are only people living on rafts made from their own imaginations, and then there is the sea. This is, after all, my story, and you're welcome to have your story, but the stories can break down because we've just said that they break down. We feel disoriented and uprooted at times when we just wandering through life without the anchor. The hope that they promised, these stories, as we watch the towers fall, the bombs explode, the earthquakes shake, the cathedrals burn, we realize that our stories ask more questions than they're capable of giving answers for, and we feel an ache deep within and realize that it is an authentic story that we're after. That's what we want. We have an authentic story, not just one of lists or facts or statements, but one of a gracious and intimate God who's invited us in to his walking story. It is a story from the beginning to the end that echoes with rifts of grace and hope and salvation and resurrection. The cavernous vault of the narrative gives space for the echoes to eternally bounce. 
reminding us of who we are, where we're going, and most importantly, that we are not, in fact, lost. If you're feeling lost today, or uprooted or disoriented by the changes in our world, by the changes in your own life, by the changes happening even politically or globally, whether that's the floods in Pakistan, whether that's the war in Ukraine, whether that's a changing monarch in the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, whether that's your own personal lives, the start of September, new school years, new relationships, old relationships breaking down, whatever it is that you're walking through, know that the story of God invites us to find our home there, to find our anchor there, that the ancient path is the true path. We can improvise. We can improvise, but we're tethered to something bigger than ourselves. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. And I actually think, because I've been on that road of just wanting to just self-actualize myself and just think about myself, and it kind of gets boring. It gets old after a while. We all know that. I really believe that. I actually really believe the church is really not irrelevant at all, but the most relevant thing to be part of a story that's bigger than ourselves is what we're actually aching for. Because we just get tired of ourselves and our own voices. And our culture says that's what we should chase all of the time. And I'm not saying that there isn't a beauty to finding yourself and your identity and living into that and being the person God made you to be. But I just mean the endless and relentless kind of echo back to yourself. When we could be part of a story that is actually advancing what we might call the kingdom of God. Can I let you into a secret? I'm tired of innovative church. I like warm church buildings, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> but I'm tired of innovative church. That's not to say we've ever been innovative here, but what I mean is I don't want to go into black boxes anymore with lights and smoke machines and God bless, <laughs> that's where I'm maybe speaking too much. But what I mean is I just think the pursuit of relevance just is kind of like a self-fulfilling perpetual loop, you know, and there's, a good, there's good things there. There's good things to that. We're not talking about style of worship or anything like that. I love some of that. But what I mean is, like, the church is trying to be innovative, just always kind of novel, like always kind of thinking up chintzy ways to kind of market the thing. And I, I need a church with a past and a present and a future. I want to be tethered to something that has roots that go deep, that has something to say to the age that we live, that is hopeful and good news, and that has the promise of the hope ahead of a world that might be made new again, where there are no wars in Ukraine or floods in Pakistan, where there is only one king, and he never dies because he is alive and reigning. I want a church with a past, a present, and a future. Growing up, I was in a Baptist church, and it was a beautiful upbringing in a conservative Baptist church. And I remember some of the middle-aged or older people at that time when we were going through a lot of change, hankering for the past, the way things used to be. And I used to say, oh, you know, we've got to move on. We've got to change. And that's true. Gotta, we, there is there's an improvisation to do. But their intuition was actually right. 
it's just they just didn't go back far enough. They want to go back to the 1950s. I want to go back to the last 2,000 years of rich Christian history, and I want to get beyond just the parochialism of my hometown. I want to dig into the patristics of the early church fathers because they have said and answered all the questions that we think we've thought for the first time. I want a church that has a past, a present, and a future. I want to be part of that. And so that intuition was totally right, that there's something we have to reach back into, the ancient paths. Jeremiah 6 says, let me go back and read that. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. That impetus, that ancient church idea is what informs what we're trying to do here, I guess. Um, It informs our worship. Um, Worship is the thing that the church does that helps shape us in the way of Jesus. But this is what we're doing. This shapes us, being here, taking communion, praying prayers, singing songs, praying for our world, praying big prayers, ridiculous prayers like peace on earth. It's the activity of the church. And it's, I'm here for that. Our worship shapes us when we give our lives to it. It's okay to come to church when we don't feel like it because church is doing something to us anyway, irrelevant of whether we feel like it. There is something always shaping us. And as Christians, we give ourselves to the communal expression of the faith, which is the church, and it shapes us. And so in recent years, I mean, some of, some of you in, in conversation have asked, why do we use like liturgy and why do we do the table every week and why do we use the creed sometimes and why? We never used to do that. And in recent years, we've developed this love of the liturgical and the contemplative and the creedal worship to integrate that and infuse it with our charismatic roots because we just love the church and all of its streams. We want to learn from all of the streams of the church. We want to learn from the best that there is to learn in terms of the the worship of the Catholic or Orthodox Church or the Anglican Church and the Charismatic Church and the Contemplatives and the Anabaptists. All of it, we want to learn from and infuse our worship with the richness of that. Not always just a song that was written five minutes ago, although I absolutely love songs written five minutes ago. I love contemporary worship. Caitlin knows I love it. Our worship team knows I love it. John knows I love it. I love contemporary worship. I love how John and the band led us this morning. But this is why we also want to pray old prayers. Have you ever been in the position where you just didn't know what to pray? Have you ever kind of been in a situation where you didn't know what to say or pray? Have you ever sat on the edge of your bed not knowing what to pray? Have you ever been in a a place like this, thinking, I don't know what to say or pray. The prayers of the church are like a gift to us. They help us when we don't have our own words. They give us words to say and to pray, to kind of submit our lives to, something that's bigger than just our own prayers, the ancient future church. And so we've been leaning a little bit into that. Um, We've been leaning a little bit into that. I'm not necessarily suggesting that I'm going to be here or Dan's going to be here or Stephanie or Gillian are going to be here with vestments on anytime soon. I'm not saying that. Or smells or bells or anything like that. Our brothers and sisters in St. Anne's are nailing that and in St. Patrick's are nailing that. I just want a church with a past, a present and a future. And that's what informs what we 
are trying to do here, to be the kind of church we're trying to be here. It's why we pray the creed, and we will pray the creed when we come to communion, because every Christian since the second century has prayed that creed, because there's something about it that kind of just helps connect us to that story. It just helps us root there. And we continue to improvise the faith in the 20th century. We continue to build upon and improvise and live out our faith and enact it and embody it and bring Jesus to the world, but we tether ourselves to the ancient faith. And our worship gives us shape and it connects us to something that's older and deeper and stronger than anything we could do by ourselves. It tells us a story that is bigger than just me, my, I, and myself. And it reminds us that we're a part of a journey others have walked before. Like our series before summer, Steps of Faith, when we looked at the cloud of witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, there are many saints, many followers of Jesus that have walked this path before. And I really, truly, deeply believe that it is the rootedness in our faith that is a tonic for the malaise of our modern world. I truly believe that it is the rootedness in our ancient faith, the old prayers, the story of God that is a tonic for the malaise that we sometimes can find ourselves in. This is what the saints of old have known for the ages that they've lived in. Rachel Held Evans says this, while experience shows that vulnerability is inevitable, better embraced than resisted, believers often expect that in a, a world of danger and uncertainty, their faith ought to function as the one certain invulnerable thing, immune to disappointment, to doubt, or to change. But invulnerability is not what we find in the biblical witness or in the testimony of the saints past and present. Our faith does not have to be perfectly packaged. There is room for doubt. There is room for that but we tether ourselves to the story of the saints of old and we live in the story with all our questions, with our beliefs and with our doubts, all in the mix. I'm going to finish with this because I've rambled and talked long enough today. I think even for those who have no faith, I think the site of a burning cathedral in Paris called Notre Dame revealed that ache For something deeper, truer, dare I say, sacred and ancient. And I actually think that ache goes even further. I believe that ache is an ache for home. I think it's an ache for home. Following Jesus, uh, Jonathan Martin, who's, a, who's a, a pastor and an author, says this, following Jesus for me is always a way of following my ache back to the source my dreams are like smoke signals that keep calling me back home. I think following Jesus in the modern world today means that we're connected to this ancient faith, but we improvise it as we create a future and participate in the kingdom of God. So following Jesus, and in following Jesus, we find our spiritual rest, we find our home when we do that when we live in that intersection, when we find ourselves tethered but looking forward with hope, we find a resting place in God. I wanted to read 
Psalm 62. And in our pre-gathering today, we have a prayer time out the back and Dan Saunders read Psalm 62 to us. And I want to read this to us. It says this, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. God most high is my salvation and my honor. He is my, my, my re- mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Augustine said this, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. If there's an ache today in your soul, in your heart about the world that we live in, if there's an ache, a yearning, a disorientation, a sense of uprootedness, a sense of change in your personal life or as you watch our TV screens and the change all around that's happening, as we go into a winter with increased living costs, as we witness the events happening around the world, my encouragement to us today is to be an ancient future church that finds its home in God, that walk the ancient paths, the ancient prayers, the ancient ways, to tether ourselves to the God of hope, to the God of restoration, to the God of shalom. Please stand. So I'd love us to come today to table behind me and for those of you that are new this table behind me is the table of Jesus it's the table of Eucharist of communion and it's one of those really old things that we as Christians do no matter where you go around the world Christians will be gathered listening to someone teach from the word from the scriptures and they will be participating in the sacrament of the table and this table is open to everyone today The only only qualifier to come to this table is that you want to be there. If you want to be at this table, this table is for you. Jesus makes that guest list. No one here, no leader here, no person here will stop you from coming to this table. This is Jesus' table, a table of bread and of wine, and it is the table of grace. And there is no practice, I don't believe really, that the church does that orientates us better as an ancient future church because at this table behind me, We stand at the intersection of the past and of the future. This table represents the life of Christ and what he gave for his church, for this world. His body, the bread that represents his body, the juice and the wine that represent his blood. The story is laid out here, and yet this is a table of the future, a table where we can come again for our second chance and our third chance and our 500th chance again to receive the presence of Christ, to receive his grace and his forgiveness and his life and his filling of of the Spirit. And we stand as Christians looking back and looking forward and this table is the intersection of that. So as we come to the table, I want you to kind of reflect upon and think about this table as that place this table that represents what it means to be an ancient future church. And in fact, a table where there are seats where everyone is welcome to be at. A table which communicates 
a feast. Speaks of the feast of the new kingdom to come. A table that speaks of home where we can find our rest for our restless souls in Jesus and Jesus alone. So the guys are going to lead us in a song. We're going to sing and I want to invite you just during the song, as soon as the song kind of begins, one by one and table by table, couple, threes, fours, families, come forward and collect a wine or a juice and a bread and bring that back to your table and enjoy worshipping with the song. And at the end of the song, I'll come forward. I want to lead us in a prayer. I want to lead us in the Apostles' Creed and I want to lead us in communion as we do that together. Is that okay? Over to you guys. Bless.